Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 29, Neurosomatic Therapy as a Practice. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to Fusion Health Radio. This is episode 29 and this is technically part two of uh, a conversation Michael and I had last time about neurosomatic therapy. Um, Before we get too far into the details of what we're talking about today, um, let's take a just step back and say Fusion Health Radio is uh, designed to help you figure out what you're doing on your journey to abundant health. Is that the way it says it on the website? Uh, I don't. We have a website? (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere out there. Okay, so um, uh, Michael and I have been uh, yucking it up before we got to the microphones today, just trying to loosen up, uh, and hopefully that translates into a flowing conversation today. Uh, Michael, tell people who you are and what do you know? So I practice integrative medicine. Uh, I do that by combining the vast wisdom and uh, experience of traditional Chinese medicine with functional medicine and what people now call evolutionary nutrition. And you've been doing that for a number of years? 22. Yeah. Uh, You've got a practice here in Nelson. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell people about that. Uh, Yeah. So my clinical practice is in Nelson, BC. Um, Usually I do mostly acupuncture, talk to people about food, teach meditation, qigong, martial arts. I know I do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, you've been known to do uh, public speaking as well? Yep. And uh, as I remember, you do a, a cleanse program once or twice a year. Are we coming up to that this year? Yeah, actually, uh, it starts in a month. Yeah. Uh, what's the title of that? Again? Uh, 10 Weeks to Abundant Health. Okay. And I'm only asking just because I think it might have changed the last time I asked. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm trying to find the branding thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I wrote a book called Returning from an Ancestral Diet. Uh, got a bunch of e-courses coming out soon, so... Yeah, I'm trying to rock the internet. Well, lots to uh, to dig into in terms of uh, health and nutrition, and get that perspective uh, from Michael. If you're keen at all, take a look at uh, integrativehealthsolutions.ca. That's the website to go to. Uh, I am the producer of this um, podcast, and um, where can you find me online? Hmm, not a whole lot of places. I'm one of those people who like to shine the light on others. So you got to look really hard to find me. If you do dig deep enough, you'll find me on Twitter. Truth about food. Uh, I am on Facebook. Uh, but I mean, who isn't, uh, you can look up anthonysanta.com and you can get a little bit of a sense of what it is I do there. And, uh, one of the big things that I do is, uh, uh dig into books and things around health and nutrition and well-being. And that's kind of how Michael and I met, uh, with my own health journey and somewhere along the line, he stuck a bunch of needles in me and then he said, let's do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we are today. I love how we recap our history every episode, and it's always different. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's. Uh, I, th- I think it's a progression. I think for me, I'm just getting more comfortable describing who I am and what I do. And uh, um, I think it's really important for people to uh, really understand uh, the perspective that you share today isn't one that, um, you know, you're not a doctor with a diploma from the internet or whatever kind of cheapo doctor there would be out there you can get a diploma from the internet wow <laughs> well i know you can get something in religion from the internet oh i did that once that was fun you're a minister too uh well i studied to be a Taoist priest before i got into chinese medicine and it's like probably 10 years ago i was up at night online goofing around and uh 
I looked into just what DAO's pre-certification in the Western world looks like, just because I was curious. And then somehow I fell across this thing where you could become a interfaith minister or something. Uh, I think it cost 10 bucks and you filled out a form and then you got a diploma. <laughs> so I did it because I was bored and I was teasing my son the next day. I became a priest in the middle of the night and he's looking at me like, what? <laughs> so I'm looking across the wall here to see if I can actually see that certificate. Uh, uh, do I? Uh, no. 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 I'm, no. Okay. We're good. I'm, I'm probably not going to try and become someone's priest. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I don't think that's why people are tuning in here. Um, we're, it was just a phase, man. <laughs> Yeah, good, good, good. Uh, we're tuned in to uh, talk to things. Uh, sorry, we're tuned in to talk to our uh, listeners about uh, health and nutrition, that sort of stuff. Uh, and last time we talked about neurosomatic therapy. And um, as we always do on the podcast, I ask you for a recap as to what we talked about the last time. Um, and that's especially important today because uh, we're talking about the subject in a little bit more, um, a little bit more in depth today. Uh, we're just going to get into the more practical side of it. Mm -hmm. So as a recap, uh, what we got into last week had more to do with sort of the background theory, uh, basically of how the human body basically can compartmentalize uh, trauma. Now, trauma is an easy thing to think of because we're all basically terrified of it because if it happens to you, it's going to change you in some way. Um, so when you think about neurosomatic therapy, it's got a lot to do with just basically how to decompress the way a person's keeping it together, right? So if I have enough bad things happen to me in a row in my life, um, not only on a psychological level, uh, is that going to imprint patterns of behavior or patterns of defense or patterns of avoidance and things like that? My nerves, muscles, and bones are also going to reorientate themselves in space, I guess, or in, in terms of gravity and movement. Um, just in a way, almost very much the way a person would hold a certain facial expression to, you know, go along with the mood they're having. Uh, the body can hold a uh, nerve muscle bone habit, uh, around posture, tension, uh, or even the lack of tension in certain areas. And it's a weird thing to sort of jump into as a conversation, but yeah. So when a person's under a lot of stress in the long term, or they're in a lot of pain, uh, or again, they're compartmentalizing trauma, there's uh, basically a memory of you as a person that's stored in your nerves, muscles, and bones, very much like a facial expression. And I use this sort of as a, a weird example for things, but if you were to sit in a room with your eyes closed and hold a really like intensely angry facial expression, and someone was to come up behind you and tap you on the shoulder, you're going to respond in some degree uh, to that interruption uh, as if you actually are an angry person, even for just maybe two tenths of a second, you're like, you're holding this really angry face and then someone touches you and you're, you have to respond to the world kind of based on your attitude or how you feel. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm playing an angry face or whatever, it's a new game. Um, it's going to take me a moment to basically gate out of that facial expression and the attitude that it holds and the emotion and the kind of memories that you're going to associate with. And obviously the same thing would be true if I was sitting there with my eyes closed and I was having a really scared face. Mm -hmm. right? So my whole body is now reading as if I'm in maybe some kind of more imminent danger. So as soon as something bumps into me, I'm going to respond to it as if I'm terrified. Even if I'm pretending to be, I have to become unterrified in my face for my mind to be not expecting something weird to happen. Yeah. In, in my experience with that, I've seen it with um, uh, friends who are actors um, who are in a very intense scene, if you will. Um, and they, I've seen them do it and I've seen them talk about it or sorry, heard them talk about it where they sort of have to um, like 
after they, you know, yell cut, you know, yeah. and the cameras stop rolling, they, uh, you know, sort of put up their hands like, give me a minute kind of thing, because mm-hmm. I, I have to sort of compose myself and remember who I am because of the intensity of emotion that they had before that is not necessarily they were play, playing acting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a fairly common sense thing. Uh, I mean, I use the facial expression thing because it's something the listeners could try, you know, right now just to say, well, what that is that true? If I hold a really intense facial expression, does that change uh, in any, you know, percentile uh, how you live in the world, how you think about yourself, how you think about other people? So, uh, when we look at the the bigger picture of this, and I'll do this very quickly because most of the podcast last time was about the, the details, but inside all of your muscles, there's a thing called a motor neuron, and its job is to basically say, go to the muscle. Uh, inside the motor neuron, there's what are called vesicles that secrete various kinds of hormones and neurotransmitters and other things that uh, are just systemic uh, tissue, I guess, like, you know, hormones are a, a tissue. But they also secrete what are called catecholamines, which are super excitatory uh, hormones like adrenaline. So when a person's uh, living habitually with the way they contain the memory of trauma, the motor neurons in the muscles that are uh, the most active in that way of cringing in the world or whatever, um, those motor neurons build up a habit and a capacity to stay uh, excited longer. Um, So... You know, if you're walking down the street and you do have a latent trauma from a mugging and someone walks around the corner and looks just like that guy who mugged you in L.A. 20 years ago or whatever, quite obviously that's going to startle you in a very deep way because, you know, those those memories and those experiences are associated. Um, so if that's happening, every muscle in your body and every motor neuron in every one of those muscles and all the hormones that they secrete are all charged up and ready to go um, because of that latent trauma. Um, obviously the more, uh, frequently a person experiences profound stress, injury, pain, trauma, uh, even lack of sleep, exhaustion, the body has to fight against, um, something in the world to keep going. And that builds up those patterns. And I, I think the metaphor I used last time was like a Christmas tree, you know, so we have a Christmas tree and it's got normal sized Christmas lights. Those would be normal sized motor neurons with normal amounts of hormones ready to go just because you're a healthy, happy animal who's in good shape. Um, if a person's embodiment is all charged up with that whole system, again, the, the Christmas tree kind of analogy comes to mind where the Christmas lights are getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where it's actually potentially dangerous to the rest of the tree. Cause you know, your mind, uh, your mind in a deeply instinctual way, again, remembers you as a person who's still in some kind of trouble. Or danger or trauma because that's just the way the human mind works it reaches through your nerve muscles and bones into the world and that tells you you know are you i don't know feeling very adaptable today or are you feeling like you'd rather curl up and hide under your bed so as we get into the uh, practice of neurosomatic therapy the job of the neurosomatic therapist is to change the volume and intensity of those memories by uh, mechanically with, uh, like massage or with acupuncture or with other things, uh, what you need to do is keep discharging all of the uh, catecholamines, inflammatory molecules, adrenaline and stuff like that, uh, from the muscles, um, frequently enough. It usually takes about 10 weeks, 12 weeks, uh, around neuroplasticity. But what gradually happens is people start to remember themselves as a much more adaptable, 
uh, fluid, uh, positive, confident person because the mind is now reaching into the world through the Christmas tree of nerve muscles and bones and everything seems normal. Whereas if the mind reaches into the world through nerves, muscles, and bones and feels like it's about ready to be eaten by a bear, that's your life. Mm, yeah, and I think we talked about that. I think we talked about the idea of uh, PTSD and how that relates to all this as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and I said that with a question mark. So that's right, disorder, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, that's the most, uh, I guess, mainstream uh, word that most people would associate with, I guess, what you're talking about with neurosomatic therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so is that what you want to talk about today? I guess it's sort of uh, treatments. Um, well, I, I'm just going to jump in where you're, you're speaking to. So PTSD, I think, would be the, I don't know, if there was a lineup of people that were coming in to get a neurosomatic therapy treatment, that would be the most, that person would be at the head of the line because obviously that makes the most sense. But a person who has chronic anxiety, chronic depression, uh, insomnia, even ADHD, things like that, autism. Uh, so basically anything that has to do with psychiatric care um, is going to have an embodied component. So it's sort of counterintuitive, I think, for some people that, you know, if it's a psychiatric condition or a neurological condition, shouldn't you be doing something with that person's brain? Mm -hmm. Right, And we are. It's just remembering that your brain actually uh, extends itself or your mind extends itself through every tissue in your body. So again, by changing the tissue habits and memories, you just feel like a different person. So I have a tangent that I want to introduce here. Shoot. Um, I read recently something about how um, when years ago when they were studying uh, brain development and how things worked, uh, at one point, uh, they looked at the electrical impulses that sort of happen in our brain. And uh, the other half of this uh, body study group, whatever it was, looked at how um, things happened chemically in the brain. Um, and when they realized that they could affect how things happen in the brain with chemicals, everyone got all excited and went down that road. And here we are today. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the tangent that, I was, that, I, that I'm on here, uh, is there something about... Uh, neurosomatic therapy that actually addresses, I guess, how the chemicals work in our brain to make us actually do what we're doing. Yep. Hmm. And the room just got 40 watts brighter. <laughs> <laughs> Light bulb just went on over my head. Yeah. I mean, I think when we think of the brain in the simplest terms and we think of good and bad, you know, bad is no neurotransmitter reserve. So you don't have much stress tolerance and you're going to have some kind of mood problem. And then we think of the good side and we think endorphins. So with neurosomatic therapy, when you're changing again over weeks, the neurological, neuromuscular patterns in a person's body, um, not only are getting the mechanical advantage and shift in that direction, but the post-treatment endorphins, which can last for three or four days. When a person predictably can have an event that's going to give them an excitatory response with those kind of endorphins that makes them feel that much better about everything for days, um, and no, we're not injecting people secretly while they're lying on the massage table with endorphins just to prove a point, but that'd be fun. Um, it just creates a different kind of predictability. I mean, the funny thing about uh, stress physiology and most mammal species is... Everything is about predictability. <laughs> you know, when you say that, the, the image of uh, saying to a dog that I had in my life before, the word walk out loud would be 
you know, the physical response, you know, bum wagon from side to side, tail wagon, knocking things off the coffee table, just total in anticipation. We're not walking yet, but his whole body is saying, we're walking and I'm so excited because I know how I feel because when I walk. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the one uh, bit of research that proves this, I think more than anything is the poor rats, but <laughs> they had these metal cages with the rats in them and they would electrocute the rats. Hmm. And in one cage, there was no electricity, so it was just rats in a cage. In another cage, there was rats that got electrocuted on the hour, every hour, for weeks. Wow. I'm not promoting this kind of research. I'm just repeating that it was done. And then they had this other cage with rats in it, and they were being electrocuted randomly. Okay. Obviously, they're not being electrocuted enough to really hurt them, but it's enough that they're, you know, when's that bad thing going to happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the rats that had... Uh, the electrocution every hour on the hour lived longer than the rats that got electrocuted randomly because at least they could predict, okay, here comes the horrible thing, and then they go back to normal. So the same thing is true of positive events. If you decided to, say, do 10, 12 neurosomatic therapy treatments in a row, let's say every week, um, you're going to be a person who can predict a really great... uh, you know, few days post-treatment of endorphin high and other stuff, or at least shift of state enough that um, there's a confidence there, there's a predictability, there's an expectation, mm-hmm. right? And it's just that one of those things, yeah, I'm going to go and do that thing that's really intense and brings up a lot of emotion and asks me to be really involved. Uh, but afterwards, I feel different, usually, almost always better. Hmm. Wow. Poor rats. <laughs> I'm still stuck just as I got feeling bad for the rats. Um, so the, the, the ideas that, uh, that, that I have around neurosomatic therapy and how it um, uh, affects brain physiology and you're talking about, sorry, not brain physiology, brain chemistry in our body uh, makeup and our physiology and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm curious to sort of get into... Um, talking about it as a practice, mm-hmm. um, and it's just the right point to do it. So when you're getting into the practical side of neurosomatic therapy, um, if you're thinking of this as a patient, you're typically going to go and see someone who knows about this kind of stuff, and they're going to do things to you, either massage, acupuncture, uh, myofascial traction, even craniosacral therapy, anything that can induce a change in, again, all those nerves, muscles, and bones that are helping you remember yourself as someone who's terrified. Um, as we get into the practical bits, I just want to give people who are listening a sense that there's a lot of stuff you can do with this called technology, if you will, completely on your own. Um, or you could say if you're going to get a massage from someone or some acupuncture from someone and they don't know about this, you could request that they work on specific areas or specific tissues in a specific order, uh, just because you want to see if that makes any difference for you. So I'm just going to dive in and um, please help me make sense to people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's why I get paid the big bucks. There you go. (laughs) So the easiest way to get into the practical things is to actually experience some deeper instincts that we all have. So imagine for whatever reason that you're standing in the meadow and there's a really large bull running towards you or a grizzly bear or ATV, alien spaceship, something's coming. Ah. So when you see that happening and you can imagine that happening to yourself, the first thing your body is going to do as an instinct is called bracing, Mm -hmm. right? So your body basically takes your shoulder blades and tries to hold them up against your ribs and closer to your chest to create more protection for your vulnerable areas. Obviously all the stuff on the front 
right? Um, your your knees kind of pull in together a little bit too. So basically, it's you know you're standing in a meadow or you're sitting in your car or whatever. But there's a reflex inside of you that's in in a way uh, beginning to move you towards fetal position. But at the same time, you're not really going to change your posture that much. But that's what it would happen if you kept bracing uh, to the point where your body's posture changed as much as it could. Mm-hmm. So in a way, your body's just trying to curl up into a ball. But at the same time, you're standing in a field, and at the same time, you're probably wanting to run away. Well, I mean, I don't need to be in a, in a meadow to think of that. I can think of any time that I've ever um, been in a car with somebody else driving, uh, and it, they it, they've braked, um, they haven't braked fast enough, mm-hmm. and it feels like in my sorry, it, it seems like in my perception that they're going to hit the car in front of me, and I can just sort of feel it in my body mm-hmm. that whole sort of <gasps> yeah, that or you're pushing your foot through the floor of the car trying to put your foot on the magical. Well, pedal that isn't there. <laughs> that too, but I but but that sort of feeling of the shoulder blades going flat and sort of hunkering down. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing that people do. Uh, I'm going to ke- keep with the meadow and the big animal because it just is a tangible thing around instinct. So you're standing in the field and you're bracing because the big monster is coming towards you, but it's not. It hasn't hit you yet, right? Maybe for some reason it's farther away than you thought. So if you've braced up and you're waiting for the thing to come and hit you and it hasn't, you know, um, obviously any kind of more long-term stress is going to do this. Your body goes from bracing to what's called apprehension or pardon me, uh, anticipation. So what that happens is now your body wants to push up off the ground. And the easiest way to think of that is around anticipation that's in a fun way would be kids at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they wake up at five o'clock in the morning and they're bouncing around like they're on speed or something like that because they're excited and they're anticipating all, all of the fun things. And uh, what that looks like from a physical or, or neuromuscular thing is a person who's trying to push off the ground. Because if you're instinctually uh, preparing to get hit by something really big by bracing yourself and a way kind of turning yourself into a ball so maybe you'll bounce or, you know, fly off the horns of the bull. Um, the next thing your body does is it starts to kind of get ungrounded. So now your shoulder blades are coming up. You're pushing off the ground. Maybe you're even straightening your legs or your your uh, your whole spine kind of gets a bit more rigid because you're in that anticipatory state. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I think about, you know, being five years old Christmas morning or something like that, it's a really exciting thing. Mm-hmm. But if I think about um, some inevitable consequence that seems to be coming my way in my life because I didn't pay a bill or... I didn't answer a call or I pissed somebody off or whatever. What I can, anytime my mind goes to the inevitability of, of that consequence or that thing, that's when people become anticipatory because we're like going, okay, it's going to be bad and it's taking a long time, but here it comes, I can feel it. So we're all balled up and we're trying to basically shoot off the ground. The third thing that people do is they engage something that's called your reticular activating system, which I'll come back to. Uh, but what it does almost instantaneously is it grips the muscles that hold your head onto your spine. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing because it all, it's like, really? That all happens in my body? Like, I don't remember ever installing that program, but I'm sure that's in there by default, right? It's been in there since you were primates. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Since we were all primates, I guess. So we call that reactivity. Now, in a person's uh, muscles that are clamping your head onto your neck, your shoulders are kind of coming up. It's like they're fighting to do two things. One, they're trying to uh, find their way around your chest to protect your chest. And part of your shoulders are also trying to like bump into your ears. 
hmm. right? Just in the sense of the motor reflexes that are happening. So if you have the bracing experience long enough, you're going to hit anticipatory stress response. If you're in an anticipatory state long enough, you're going to become highly reactive. Like a person who's very jumpy, you know, you make a loud noise and they jump out of their skin. Like, oh, what? <clears throat> what? What? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to get into the technical bit a little bit. So the muscles that attach your head onto your spine, uh, that's called the occipital triangle muscles. They're very, very specific. Um, and if you've ever had acupuncture, everyone gets needles in those muscles, right? Because uh, they're so effective at changing state. So those muscles are attached to something called your RAS, or reticular activating system. And that's a part of your nervous system that regulates tonus in your muscles. Regulates. Say that again. Tonus, like the, the the amount of tone or tension your muscles hold every day, all day, just in case you need them. T O N A S. Tonus. T O N I S. I think. I-S. Like muscle tone. Okay. Uh, tonic with an S. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so the reticular activating system basically is a part of the computer of your brain that can feel how wound up you are, or it can make you more wound up. Or if it's treated properly or you're, you know, a very mind-body-aware person, you can release the motor tension as a volume in your body, like volume on your stereo. Okay. So people who are really, really fit, really, really springy, really, really uh, athletic, they have a lot of muscle tone because they use them all of the time, right? And their motor neurons and their catecholamines are charged up because they're athletes. Now, that usually works out well because most athletes are being trained how to have good posture, good reflexes, good strength, flexibility. It's all about kind of balance. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're looking at a person, you know, for fun, the poor guy with PTSD in a field being chased down by large animals with horns. (laughs) Um, Obviously, that person's muscle tone and memory and stuff like that is probably not going to be the same as one of an athlete. But there's a bunch of parallels that are going on there. So again, your RAS, reticular activating system, it regulates tonus, but it also tells you how healthy and fit you are. So if you have good balanced tone and muscles all through your body and you're fit, you have great circulation, your brain's going to know that. Whereas if you're standing in wherever you're standing, you're sitting in your car. So, you know, if you're standing there and you're not an athlete, but your reticular activating system reads in, in the kind of organization of your muscle tension that you're actually nervous as hell or you're actually really scared of, you know, something, that's going to be your memory of yourself. Now, there's just one more part of this, which it isn't always really important to everyone, but it's sometimes important to some people, so I'll bring it up. Your reticular activating system has another job besides just regulating muscle tonus. And it's uh, basically uh, almost in a way uh, like internet bandwidth. It has to do with what your neurological system has to do with what we would refer to as bandwidth uh, in normal conversation uh, between every sense organ in your body. Okay. So if your eyes are great, 2020, your ears are good, you know, your sense of smell is good, taste is good, your t- sense of touch is good, uh, you're a pretty tangibly aware uh, animal. Whereas if your RAS says, you know what, we have to hold all this excitatory tension and not do anything with it, and we're not being very athletic either, uh, what happens over time is your body takes uh, a certain amount of its adaptive capacity and takes it away from your sense organs to keep your body more reactive because you're living in this terrifying field with scary people and monsters. So the result would be somebody would be, have poor vision or poor, um, like the senses that you just described. Yep. 
Yeah. So here, here's another way to look at it. So say you're, for sake of a completely different metaphor, you're sitting in a forest and you're meditating and you want it to be there and you don't have PTSD. Okay. And you're, you're sitting there in your meditation and you hear a twig crack, say 60 feet somewhere behind you. How's your meditation going? <laughs> might have just snapped me out of a, a deep meditation. It's a bear, serial killer. <laughs> what was that noise? So, um, Jason. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, in a way, it's just looking at adaptability um, in the sense of being able to respond to things. A really healthy person who's in a really good state has a really good sense array. Like you can hear really well, smell really well, see really well. But if you're sitting there in your forest, uh, trying to meditate, but you're actually profoundly upset, right? And you're physically tense, you know, you're bracing, you're anticipating everything, you're reactive to everything, you're just a ball of fury and stress. Your instinctual mammal reflexes are going to say, well, I think the bear is already in my lap. I don't think I need to listen for that, you know, twig cracking 60 feet behind me because the danger is already present. Hmm. So instinctually your body's like, I don't think the sense organs are as important as my muscles right now. And up you get, and away you run. Uh, well, it's just more about why the more chronic stress people have, mm. the more embodied that stress becomes, the faster they need glasses or hearing aids or other things, because your brain is instinctually just saying, dude, we don't need to see that far. It's it's in your face. Mm. And maybe that's why in all the horror movies, um, people are always like, hey, did you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Yeah. Like they always question it or something, right? Yeah. So when you look at those three things, they're very much like layers, you know. So before you take that uh, step forward, um, as you've described these uh, uh, states in the body, um, because the bull is running across the field at me, horns on fire and all that sort of stuff, lasers coming out of its eyes. <laughs> um, that, that's where my mind went with it. Um, th that's true of everybody? Yep. Yes. Yep. Categorically, all across unless, the board. Unless you have a, a completely alien nervous system, you are going to be compelled to have instinctual reflexes. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I'll, maybe I'll step back from this just for a sec because because I developed neurosomatic therapy, I kind of admit it. So uh, I guess just for context, you know, although I'm, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Michael Smith. Uh, on a podcast talking about health, most of my adult life, I've been a professional martial artist teaching, you know, people who want to learn about that stuff, including cops, prison guards, special forces, military, sheriff's department, paramilitary survivalist groups, like whoever wanted to learn how to hurt each other. That was my thing. Uh, that was another phase, man. <laughs> I, I still do that. Right after being the priest. <laughs> <laughs> was, I think I watched that Kung Fu show when I was a kid and I thought, oh, I can fight and also be a really spiritual guy. Cool. Anyway. So spending, well, no, this is about my 40th year of training in martial arts. So it's a big encyclopedia of, of experience for me, uh, but especially training people for actual combat. And then there's martial arts where you wear pajamas and you bow and you pretend you're in Asia and you do all this fun stuff. And that's really cool. But when you're training people who actually, I mean, it's their job to not die while dealing with people who might be completely nuts and were very dangerous, uh, the kind of training you're going to do is going to be different. Right. There's, there's no pajamas. There's no bowing. There's, it's, you know, it's, there's, there's no mats under your feet. No. <laughs> and you're wearing street clothes and street shoes and whatever else. Uh, cause it's gotta be completely viable to, you know, your experience cause it's for real, not for mm -hmm. fantasy. So over the years of teaching really, really, um, 
intense combative stuff, that's where I really started to discover those layers of, of reflex. Because in, in basically in combat, physical contact with, with another person, the last thing you want to do is block. The first thing you want to do is make them block. Because hmm. if I can make you say no to what's happening, you're already moving in to the way humans instinctually deal with trauma badly. Right, because if you're in a fight, bracing and and then blocking and then getting anticipatory and trying to duck <clears throat> and then getting reactive and you're spazzing out, it, it happens in seconds. Like you can, and a person, especially if a person's had enough difficulty in their life that those systems are already loaded up. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're actually less likely to get into a fight with them because they're afraid of danger anyway. But your, your typical person, when you actually come at them within about three heartbeats, give or take, they're completely useless because they've gone through those first three stages of, of uh, instinctual response to danger. And now they're basically completely uncoordinated. And that's, I mean, it's a medical fact that if you're in severe stress, you lose 50% of your dexterity every five seconds. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And the, the thing that's really important about those first three, which I was speaking to a, a bit ago, uh, the bracing, the anticipatory movements, and uh, your reactivity. I mean, that changes your flexibility, it changes your coordination, it changes everything. But the most important thing is they're all precognitive. You don't even think about it. They happen before you. Huh. In the sense that if you were to talk to someone and recognize that the only part of them that has any use for language is above their eyes, everything that actually has to do with instinct is below your eyes or before the part of you that has language which is precognitive because, you know. Because monkey, monkeys don't know how to talk. There's no language, so you can't cognize it. <laughs> <clears throat> right. Right. So, that, I mean, I put that out there so that people might actually take a moment and go, okay, well, at least I don't feel that bad about myself because the, all of these things are, you know, millions of years old instincts and they're happening before me. But now that I'm aware of them, maybe there's something I can do about them as a conscious being. Hmm. And so I, I'm going to take a long shot here and say that the um, the awareness of having that in the body, and because that happens to everybody, no matter what, just because of who we are as the human animal, um, that somewhere in there there's the magic that you're going to talk about about how to actually. Um, well, let me do that right now, just for fun. I mean, mm -hmm. you could sit here and put your hands out to your sides, but no. It came out recently that you used to work in service. <laughs> yeah, as a waiter years as ago. As a waiter years ago. <laughs> Who hasn't? But um, Let's say you were both standing, sitting here with a bowl of soup in each hand. Yeah. And what I want to do is rotate my humerus bone or your bone near your biceps. And I want to just rotate that bone to the sides as if I'm serving soup to people to my left and right at the same time. Okay. And by opening that, that by turning that bone, uh, that allows my shoulder blades to kind of gradually migrate towards my spine. Yep. So if I can do that a few times with deep breathing and uh, the conscious choice to relax any of the bracing that I'm holding in the center, like the front of my chest, mm -hmm. I'm now basically giving myself a little bit of a neurosomatic bath. Cool. Because I'm taking my mind and body and I'm trying to reduce the volume or the noise of instinctual tension. Because... Luckily, the stuff above our eyes that's above instinct is actually smart and can usually grab instinct by the terrified spine and say, dude, chill, try this. And then the instincts can kind of bleed off the pressure that, that we're holding uh, at a very subconscious level. So you could do something else uh, like a basic qigong gesture where you bring your arms up and then let them float down to the side beside you. Release the tension you're holding in your upper traps. 
And then if you were to do that, maybe lull your head side to side, or you could be, I don't know, laying on the side of your bed, you know, in some way to let your head, you know, dangle a little bit, or you could have a friend gently pull on your head or don't hang yourself. It won't help. Um, just to reduce the tension in your occipital triangle muscles so that the, you can feed back that uh, shift of state to the RAS and just say, look, we don't have to be twitchy. We don't have to be anticipatory. We don't have to be all balled up waiting for bad things to happen. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and typically you would start with bracing and release that and then move to uh, the upper traps and your, your neck and head and then go deeper into the, the base of your skull. In the sense of if you're doing a yoga class or you're just doing some gentle breathing and stretching on your floor uh, or you're um, getting some kind of therapy, be massage, acupuncture, stuff like that. Uh, by starting with the, you know, we would usually, with acupuncture, we usually put a needle in the pec minor because it's the muscle that's the most dense and stubborn at holding your shoulder blades too tight around your chest. Now, I saw you just put your thumb there on the body. Yeah. So for the sake of people so, listening, where is that? So if I was to take my left hand and put it over my right chest, and what I'm going to do is just sort of move my right shoulder forward, you feel that weird sort of bumpy bone that's right there? Mm-hmm. That's actually your shoulder blade. Huh. Yeah, your shoulder blade sticks out the front of your chest. So the muscle that attaches to the part of your shoulder blade that sticks out to the front uh, and goes down and attaches onto your ribcage is called the pec minor. It's like, you know, your big pec for a weightlifter guy and so this little tiny one underneath. If I was to draw a line from, <coughs> I guess, my shoulder and draw it down to uh, maybe like on a 45 degree angle or so. So that would be your pec major. Because okay. your pec goes from your the humerus or your arm bone across to your chest. The pec minor goes from your shoulder blade that sticks out front almost like a little finger. It's a very small muscle, mm-hmm. and it goes almost com- goes right down towards your nipple and attaches to your ribs. Okay. Right? So it's, it's more of a postural muscle, but it's just a really deep muscle that holds on to that tension. In your pelvis, it would be the psoas that would be doing the same thing. So we have this opportunity to reduce the bracing, the anticipation, and the reactivity uh, as a conscious practice uh, to reduce that instinctual drive. Mm-hmm. So that's the first three. And again, precognitive, you don't have a choice. They're happening even if you, I don't know. I can't think of an example that would make that funny. Even if, yeah. <laughs> Even if the bull didn't have lasers coming out of its eyes. Well, we'll put that out for comments on the podcast. What would you say is a really weird, ridiculous metaphor for when that doesn't work? So those first three happen uh, to everybody. And then the first thing that happens that's considered a cognitive uh, response uh, happens basically, and this is where the Buddhists, I think, really nailed it, um, with the kind of muscles and gestures that would either push something away from you or grab, grab onto something and keep it close to you, which the Buddhists call attachment and aversion. Mm-hmm. Typically, when we're thinking about you know body areas and stuff like that, it has to do with all the muscles that would uh, happen between your elbow, your wrist, and all the muscles that are between the bones of your hand. So they can get more and more dense, more and more, uh, I guess, more less and less flexible and less and less coordinated because when you're always doing the same uh, uh, action with muscles, it, it's kind of like putting a rut in the road. Your nervous system says, that's just what we do, you know. Whereas if you do a lot of different things, then you have more capacity, dexterity, flexibility, strength for other things. And then you're a person who has lots of choices, Right. So there's that, all the muscles in your forearms and hands, as well as the forearms uh, or the muscles in your jaw that have to do with clenching your teeth. Hmm. And we call that capacity control. Wow. (laughs) So the the first thing you're going to do in a situation where you're braced up instinctually, something's coming towards you. You don't know what, you don't know why. It could be the tax man. It could be the 
crazy bull with the laser eyes. Or it's on fire. That was awesome. <laughs> right? So your body knows something's wrong and it knows it's coming towards you. You're anticipatory, so you know it's getting more imminent, but you're also not aware of the outcome, right? Because that's what anticipation is, is at some point it's going to happen. You're reactive, so now you're all jammed up in your muscles and your sense array is getting weaker. Um, so obviously the next thing to do, and the only thing really that any of us would do when we just sort of suddenly wake up to the, re the realization we're freaking out is to try and control something. If it's grab onto it, if it's to push it away, if it's to, you know, grip it in your mouth, it's just that instinctual thing. Like I got to do something. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, uh, again, um, just to be clear, as you, as you talked about these three different, uh, processes that happen, um, clenching of the jaw and the arms and that sort of thing is just the next progression after that yeah but it's the first one that has to do with you because the other ones are animal things okay so yeah. the part of you that has language is sitting on top of an animal going why am i freaking out i better do something about it okay right so all of a sudden the uh the conscious brain is sort of saying put up your dukes here comes that something's gonna go down or yeah. whatever it is and i mean if it's gripping your steering wheel or if it's I'm not clenching your jaw to not say that thing to your wife that you probably shouldn't yell out loud, but it's like coming up and you know, like Tourette's or something like, oh, don't say that. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot of things around that. But again, when it comes to the, the treatment uh, for clinicians who are listening to this or for patients who want more precision, you know, in, in their body work and stuff like that, um, that's probably the hardest one to really release because there's a part of you that's like, I can't lose control. If I lose control, all the madness inside of me that's got me braced up, anticipatory, and loaded with reactivity, and my brain's freaking out, I'll probably just destroy the world. So I got to hold it in. Uh, and I would think that some people wouldn't even recognize the world. That might be freaky as well, because the ones they know is one that's actually on the defensive all the time, right? It could be. I mean, I think the most common conversation I have with people who have latent trauma, PTSD, and stuff like that is, I'm just really afraid of what I would do if I lose control. Mm -hmm. I, I would never get drunk. I would never take mushrooms. I would never do acid. I, I just, I just instinctually know something really bad will happen if I lose control. Mm -hmm. Right. And obviously the most important thing for those people is to get on the mushrooms and lose control because you're, you know, you're not changing. Nothing's going to change. I'm not literally saying everyone should take mushrooms. It's just sort of a joke. But I, I do actually often ask my patients that and it's not that I want them to take mushrooms. It's I want them to recognize they're a complete control freak. Right. And it's, it's maybe an adaptive plus because they haven't lost it or they haven't maybe hurt their kids or they haven't done anything bad but they're still freaking out mm -hmm. uh so uh hands and arms and clenching teeth and that sort of thing is sort of the first sort of conscious yeah. thing that happens is there yeah so that would be the progression yeah and that would be the fourth thing you'd want to focus on in the sense of treatment because you can't lose control or at least release the attitude and habits of control if you're still feeling actively braced actively anticipatory actively reactive Mm -hmm. So if you can even loosen that's the series of muscles like, you know, your shoulders, your, your, you know, or your pec minor, your traps, then your the occipital triangle muscles. And there's more to it than that. I'm just trying to keep it really like precise or easy to follow for people. Um, you're not going to be able to release uh, the demon <laughs> uh, into the world if it's still alive. Mm -hmm. So you have to reduce those instinctual patterns of, of holding before you're instinctually going to actually release the control mechanism. I don't know if this is too early to ask this question, but if you were to actually work through this process uh, with your acupuncturist, massage person, whomever it is, um, as you work through the first three, uh, do they uh, get easier to 
deal? Like, would yeah. you, by the time you work on your bracing and anticipation and all that sort of stuff, are you more likely to be uh, willing to lose control or to well, release okay. control? So I'm just going to respond to that by going a little bit deeper into the practice. So typically, if I'm doing a neurosomatic therapy session with someone, say it was going to be you, we've never done this before, but if it was, before we even start the treatment, I would have you make what's called a somatograph or a, a fairly intuitive drawing of your body and where you feel the most tension in your body mm-hmm. before even hearing about all this other stuff. Um, and then we would sit down together and look at that image. And then I would sort of discuss with you, you know, uh, people who have that much tension in this area are usually experiencing, you know, this kind of stress or it's got more to do with, you know, that kind of, uh, pattern. Like I just described those, those layers. Um, so here's you and me in a room, you've drawn a picture of your secret, you know, booky bits or whatever you're afraid of people ever seeing. And you know that I know that, you know, that whatever we're going to do next is actually about how you feel, not about your muscles. Hmm. Your muscles are helping you hold all those feelings in. And I usually call those feelings Oscar the Grouch because it, it, you know, I don't know, it's a great image because Oscar the Grouch is a dangerous, hostile, angry thing. And the only reason that you can, or the only way you can be safe is to keep the lid on the can. Hmm. So in order to take the lid off the can to let your feelings out and be present to them, uh, it's good to have kind of a container, but it's also good to be honest that that's what you're doing. Cause if you go to acupuncture and you're waiting for the mystical chi to go through your mystical meridians and make mystical good things happen, you, you have no idea. You're just hoping <laughs> you, you're mystically going to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's going to get whatever they can get out of it. So imagine lying on a, the table to get acupuncture and you know that if I'm putting a needle in your pec minor, I'm inviting you to lie there for 15 to 20 minutes and release all of the feelings that you have or to allow them to move, to take the lid off the can. Mm-hmm. So now you're lying there going, okay, he's left the room and I'm going to lie here and just try and actively release that kind of tension and the stories that go with it and mm-hmm. the memories. So, I mean, it would be different if I was doing an actual neurosomatic therapy treatment because I'd be doing some massage to the muscle and then some traction to the muscle. So now you know that I know that you know that as I'm pulling on the fascia, say of your pec minor or something like that, it's about the bracing. And we might even be having a conversation about what exactly you're trying to let go of. You know, okay, my dad used to hit me a lot and I'm holding that kind of cringing flinch thing, but you're only going to let it go when you actually maybe allow some forgiveness to come into yourself to allow the, the state around those memories to shift. Cause it's really all about just shifting state. And in that allowing, is that something that happens consciously or, or would it actually, um, uh, come out because you're sort of working out the kinks? So I, the only way to really answer that would be to sort of notice that humans have two legs and there's a left foot and a right foot. So typically there's going to have to be a cognitive, a sort of somato-emotional willingness to say, okay, I'm going to feel whatever's going to come into the space of my consciousness when I let this habit go. And you don't know what it's going to be like, but you have to be willing on a mental level to deal with the stress of whatever's going to happen to you in the next 10 minutes. Uh, you know, it's in a treatment room, you're with the doctor, it's all good, but you still have to give yourself permission to have whatever come out of the can that's going to come out. You might have, I mean, I've seen people suddenly remember being molested as a kid. And for 30 years, they had no memory of it. And now all of a sudden, they're lying on the massage table going, ah, because they're living the memories, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a very conscious practice. And often there's a lot of communication going on, even a lot of intuitive stuff going on. And this this is going to sound a little bit weird, so I don't know how to say this uh, without 
first saying it's going to sound weird because I don't want people to think I'm crazy, <laughs> but I'd, I'd say probably maybe one out of four treatments that I've done in that particular uh, field, say nurse medic therapy, I'd say one in four times that I'm doing that, I get mental images of something happening to the person that I'm working on. And if I ask them, did you have something really bad happen in your father's office when you were about nine and they start bawling and they're like, yeah, but they told me they're getting divorced and this. And like, they're like, why did you ask me that? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm sitting here working on your back and I saw a picture of you in your office with your dad and him yelling and screaming. And I just wanted to ask you, is that you or me? Because my dad doesn't have an office. <laughs> hmm. Well, maybe it's because you're... Um how do you, I say this in your words? You're more flexible and you're more, uh, sense, um, your senses are higher. Maybe. I mean, I've got all kinds of theories about it. I don't think the, I mean, that'd be its own podcast is what is intuition, but. Sure. But um, it's, it's that there's something there, uh, energetically or, you know, intellectually or whatever it is that you actually can quote unquote see. Yeah happening for the other person wow so just to say that i mean that that's and i bring that up not as an example of you know magically being psychic or a crazy person or both uh but just more about the fact that i mean that's what it's all about for neurosomatic therapy to work is you have to basically you know dive in naked to the sea of whatever emotional trauma you're carrying and be willing to experience it and embrace it and respond to it in whatever skillful way you can so it's less of a driver in your life towards stress or illness. Mm -hmm. So we got those first three instinctual layers. Then we have that initial cognitive layer of control. The next thing that's kind of like a layer, uh, the fifth sort of thing that people do when they're losing it uh, over years and years and years is called apprehension. Now, I love that word because uh, when you take that word apart, it says some really interesting things. So apprehension you know, if you were to give it a definition, Anthony, what would you say that means? Uh, apprehension. Um, taking a pause before you actually do something uh, and thinking about your actions before you do them. Yep. It's, uh, it's a word that comes under the qualifier of fear mm -hmm. because apprehension is... Yeah, it's like, you know, do I really want to jump off of this thing? Even mm -hmm. though I've got a giant rubber van strapped to my ankles and I'm not going to die. Yeah, I haven't tried bungee jumping either, but <laughs> that would be a very apprehensive moment for sure. And interestingly, the word apprehension comes from a prehensile, which is a lack of a tail or a hand or a foot that can flop over a branch and allow you to hang from it. Because a prehensile limb is a flexible limb that you hang off of. So apprehension, think monkey. Mm-hmm. You know, your great, great, great grandmas and grandpas, mine too. Um, if they feel a lack of prehensile experience, they can no longer hold on to the tree. What's going to happen to them? Fall down, go boom. Fall down, go cat food. <laughs> Saber tooth tiger cat food? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that, that's why primates live in trees is they're really yummy. You know, mm. but if they are going to be, if they're hanging off of a branch and they're in danger, the fear of letting go of the branch puts you back into the control mechanism. Hmm. The experience of what will happen if you let go of the branch is dire, but it's unknown. So apprehension is the experience of dire threat of the unknown. Apprehension means, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to turn into cat food. Yeah. And I mean, nowadays it could be, I'm going to go bankrupt trying to get hit by a car or weird orange people who run large countries are going to start shooting bombs at people, you know, whatever. But anyway, we, we can, we can come up with all kinds of things to be apprehensive. About. <laughs> uh, yeah. And yes, if you're unaware, it's 2017 and yes, Donald Trump is in fact the president. So. Anyway, 
So apprehension is a really big thing, and, and and there's different qualities to it, and it all builds up in your lower back. Hmm. So in your your kind of the upper part of your low back is generally kind of just general worry gets stored there, anxiety, you know, and stuff like that. As your back gets more and more tense, kind of in the mid low back, then that's really like that's fear, like blatant cold fear. Uh, is that uh, sciatica? Is that the same spot, or is that even lower? Uh, sciatica happens in your hip. Okay. Well, I know it's behind me, so I that's yep. why I think <laughs> you're the doctor here. <laughs> Good thing I asked. And then if you go down to where your spine attaches to your pelvis and that gets really stiff, that's what we just call dread. Like you just now you're, you don't, it doesn't even matter what, you know, you don't even care about trying to fantasize to figure out what Oscar is going to do to you or the world. You're just experiencing dread. And that's mm. typically when people start reaching out for painkillers, uh, addictive drugs and stuff like that. Cause I mean, I'm cat food. Where's the cat? I can, I mean, I've been lying here on the ground forever waiting to be eaten. So, ah, mm-hmm. wow. Uh, I remember <coughs> uh, reading something, um, uh, years ago, uh, Louise Hay, uh, wrote the book, um, heal your body. I think it was called anyways. Um, the, the joke around um, my place with my girlfriend was, you know, what would Louise say about that? Right. <laughs> um, because, you know, you'd bang into the coffee table or something like that. Oh, hey, what would Louise say about that? You know, I got to look it up. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, but, her work is interesting. Uh, I don't really have much to do with it myself just because it's too literal. Mm-hmm. But, mean, it, but it, it, the, the point I was trying to make there was that, you know, she often made these correlations. Uh, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but you know, if you experience pain here, it relates to some kind of emotional block here. And I always remember um, her saying something about lower back pain is um, money fears or fears about money. Yeah. And that was oh. that's how, as specific as she was. And I just always remember that one. Yeah. So I think when uh, anyone in the mind body uh, endeavor is getting that literal, you're getting their experience. Mm-hmm. So Louise has money fears in her low back, but I can't say that for you. I can just say apprehension is, um, it isn't about what you're apprehensive about. It's the fact that as an instinctual primate who has language, you're not adapting anymore. You're kind of holding all of these habits and things in. And the longer we do this, the more our mind just reads the world as dangerous and us as ineffective or broken. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're living with all those five layers charged up long enough, you're going to get to an experience that uh, usually I describe it as um, adaptive resistance. And that basically builds up in your diaphragm. So you don't breathe very deeply Uh, when you're squeezing your diaphragm, either because you're trying to make your chest look bigger or your stomach look smaller or both. um, In the sense of what people usually do as a postural habit. Uh, your brain reads that basically as um, a kind of helplessness. Hmm. Um, does the brain look at what you're trying to do with your body and say, say, who are you trying to kid? You're lying. Like, um, is, 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 does that argument ever? I don't think you could separate the part of you that lies from the part of you that knows you're lying. Okay. Although that's an interesting thing to bring up. But uh, So now we're at layer number six, and that happens in your diaphragm. Right. So those are all going to be different um, in the sense that it's each of us has those postural um, habits and mechanisms in the way that we do. Mm-hmm. You know, they're always a little different for everybody, but the regions and the order in which they happen is pretty much consistent with everybody. So there's two other layers to this, um, but they don't really have locations so much as patterns. 
So if a person has been loaded up with all of those six primary what I call layers of distress, eventually they're going to start getting more um, consistent or what we call rigid. So the seventh layer we call rigidity, but um, it's more like when you brought the, the idea of being stubborn. Now you're like, you're so balled up in your body that you can't even feel your adaptability in the way that say you could as a child. And now in a way, it's almost like your mind becomes stubborn to the point of defending all of these bad habits. Because mm -hmm. it's, yeah, I mean, once, once you get past the diaphragm part, instinctually you're no longer viable. Uh, years ago, I sold computers and the analogy that I had with people um, who were using outdated equipment and obviously I wanted them to buy something newer. Uh, the analogy I, I made with them was that they were comfortable with the limp, mm -hmm. um, that they had gone for a hike. And at some point during a the hike, there was a stone that landed in their shoe and uh, it first hurt for a little bit. And then they just kept on walking and then they just got comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And they didn't realize that they could take their shoe off and take the stone out. Yeah. You know, so we get to that, the seventh layer where people become rigid and defiant and they're defending what they're doing. And this is me, man. You know, you talk to those guys in their fifties that are all curmudgeonly and you mm -hmm. know, racist bigot people or whatever. They, they just have that attitude. It's me versus the world and I'm right. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and then there's a, another layer of that we just call cutting off, which is when a person is over years and years and years completely instinctually, you know, again, inhibited. Um, and on a psycho-emotional level, exhausted and potentially very, very brittle or stubborn and, and all that kind of stuff. At a certain point, people just lose interest in, in basically everything. And they, they mean, uh, I'll watch my shows and I'll eat my hoot and I'll do what I'm told if I have to, but everything else doesn't matter anymore. Hmm. Yeah. They've, cause you're, you're just like on a level of adaptability, curiosity, all that stuff just goes away. Cause as far as your brain is concerned, instinctually, you're just waiting to be eaten by a big cat. <laughs> you're just waiting to die. <clears throat> and you've been sitting in a cage being electrocuted every random minute for a long time too. Cause, uh, again, the, the, the part of the mind that's adaptable and curious and playful and likes to learn, um, obviously is a pretty important part of the mind, but we don't always see the world through that lens. We sometimes see it through the lens of danger or through the lens of the nerve muscle bone habits you have as a posture, how you breathe and everything else. Cause your brain is like, wow, this does not feel, um, the way, um, instinctually I think I'm supposed to feel mm -hmm. right. Cause instinctually you should feel completely pliable like a baby. Very cool. So when it comes to the opportunity for people who are listening, uh, if you're a practitioner of something, play around with it. Get your patients to draw the picture of themselves and, you know, get, just be intuitive and say, well, let's see if we can unravel some instinctual habits of tension. And then we'll see if we can dig into some more cognitive habits of tension. And you just work your way through all of that from layer one all the way in. And again, layer seven and eight, they're not uh, specific to a, um, a certain region of the body or a certain kind of event. It's just what that person's doing when they become that rigid or when they completely cut off from everything that's available to them in their life as, as, as an opportunity. Yeah, and I think, as you said it before, that the, uh, dealing with, uh, the things one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> um, will eventually, dissolve um the rigidity the sort of stubbornness uh, it, you, you can't help but uh continue to heal 
uh, as you go down the line. It's kind of like a magic pill in the sense that, you know, and I mean this with humor, when I say that I know that you know that I know that you know that we're working on your actual feelings, not just your, your elbow or your armpit or something. Uh, I think that's the biggest part of any kind of somato-emotional mind-body work is when everybody involved knows that's what's going on. Because mm-hmm. you can't get up on a table and have someone work on you on, on that level. Well, I guess you could try and ignore what's going on, but I think it'd be pretty obvious within 10 seconds that the person working on you was going to say, this is not the day for us to do this because you're trying to hide. <laughs> right. Well, and I would imagine as a practitioner that um, um, it would be very mechanical for mm-hmm. you to actually encounter somebody like that who's you know basically a brick with a stone wall and cage and fence and whatever it is all around them and they don't want to let you in. It's like... Why am I here again? You'd be asking yourself. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes you run into that with people and then they just have to work it out because they're on that threshold of, I don't know what's going to happen if I let go. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's okay. We'll handle it. I mean, I've had almost fist fights with people that have come off the table completely belligerent and angry and freaked out. When I was doing neurospatic therapy as kind of my primary focus, it was about 12 years ago, um, I built specialized tables. They were like about a foot and a half off the floor. So I could sort of scooch myself up next to the table with part of my limb, my legs under the table. Uh, and I could still work with people and apply enough mechanical traction and pressure and stuff to do what I was doing. But the number of people who started having, um, what's called myclonic shaking, they just started freaking out and shaking. Then they fly off the table and bounce into furniture and stuff. That's when I said, I think I need to use different tables because mm-hmm. if people fly off the table and they're already next to the floor and there's no other furniture in the room, they're going to have a lot less, you know, things to sue me about. Because <laughs> <laughs> some people like they, some people just fall asleep. Most people cry a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of sometimes, you know, uh, it's kind of noisy. We also had to soundproof the rooms because people would be yelling or shrieking or crying and moaning and stuff. And I mean, I bring up that imagery because that's what the invitation is. So you want to completely go in and like pop the hood, let Oscar out to run around, see what's going on. You're going to have to be 100% present and 100% honest. So I think that the idea of actually getting into something like this, because um, not everyone's going to find a neurosomatic uh, well, practitioner. I think I've only taught 24 people, so there's not a lot of people out there who do this. <laughs> right, but I mean, it, it, at some level, I think this whole podcast has been kind of an invitation to look at um, your experience of the world uh, and how you're body physiology affects it you know and there's tons of how many different practitioners can you think of that deal with body issues you know everything from cranial sacral to uh i don't know chiropractic to massage to you name it right Mm -hmm. um for for a time when i was in victoria i can remember going to a chiropractor uh, every month just because i was so uh, tense at work the work that i was doing um and i noticed a big difference in uh, I kept on going, even though I didn't really feel anything from the chiropractic. Like I didn't feel like I was any more flexible or any more this or that. I just noticed that I actually felt better about myself after going. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, it's only 40 bucks. Yeah. Whatever. You know, and if I threw 40 bucks at somebody every month and I felt better about myself, I didn't really care. But, That's you know, a after good investment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that somewhere um, uh, investing in my body, um, being more flexible and being more uh, upright and all that sort of stuff enabled me to uh, deal and uh, get on with a job that I really didn't like, you know? Um, and the light bulb just got, you know, 60 watts brighter <laughs> after listening to you talk about all this. So I guess you're doing the same sort of thing here with people. So you're sort of saying, hey, this is an opportunity for you to um, deal with some stress, crap, 
bad things yep. and, I mean, in your I, life? I mean, as a practice, uh, if you're not a clinician, it, I mean, I do this probably maybe once a week. If I wake up in the morning and I don't have anywhere to be in a hurry, I'll just move around and, you know, find ways for my posture and gravity to just loosen up those different regions. Mm-hmm. And then I can, you know, get up and move around and go, okay, I just went through those, you know, primarily those six layers of, of distress and had a really good check-in with myself around how much stress I'm holding. Does this type of uh, attention, um, like would somebody need to actually have somebody else help them do this or could somebody do something like, I don't know, Tai Chi or Qigong or something that would I, actually I, help the body? I think if you had a Qigong practice or uh, I don't know about yoga because yoga is kind of static. If you have an embodiment practice, whatever it turns out to be, it's just about bringing your attention to those regions of your body, you know. So if I'm thinking about bracing, it's going to be my pec minor, my psoas. Uh, if you don't know what those things are, go on Google Images and look at all your cool muscles. They're really cool. Um, you can do this yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and like I said, I do that, you know, kind of regularly where I just check in because, well, this is a weird thing to say out loud, but uh, the reason I invented it is I turned out I had PTSD from early childhood trauma and I didn't know. And then I got involved in ceremonial things and some other stuff that brought those memories to light. And for a couple of years, I was a bit of a basket case because I, you know, when you suddenly remember things that change profoundly how you can see yourself in the world, it's it's a little startling. Mm-hmm. So that's why I keep up my practice. So as long as I can make sure I'm not um, allowing any of those reflexive instinctual layers of tension to get carried away, then they don't. Whereas if I get really, really busy and ignore those habits of embodiment, they kind of sneak back into play. And then I find myself being short-tempered and impatient and other stuff. And I'm like, this isn't really who I am, what's going on. And I go back in my practice and I'm like, oh, well, of course, I've just allowed all the stuff to build up in my system. So of course I'm a bit more of a jerker. Uh, less patient with people. So I think there's one more thing to speak to quickly. Um, we started the conversation off about the guy in the field and the bull with the horns and the fire and the lasers and whatever. <laughs> so I think it's it's always a good idea when you're having this kind of conversation to start with, yeah, most of us are dealing with things that are coming at us from the outside, coming towards us that are you know higher consequence things, if it's money or people or whatever. For people who have pretty significant emotional turmoil in whatever direction they do, it goes back to Oscar the Grouch. Because the, the scariest thing is, um, in my experience with all this stuff, is a lot of people who hold in a lot of tension, they're bracing, they're anticipatory, they're reactive, they're controlling, they're apprehensive, they're, you know, they've hit their, the kind of wall of their adaptability to what they're afraid of coming into their world from the inside. Hmm. Right. So it's like, you know, if we didn't use Oscar, we could say, well, maybe the butterflies in your stomach have morphed into pterodactyls with machine guns and they're coming to get you and And everybody else and horns on fire and lasers. So hold those guys in. Okay. Mm. And a lot of, a lot of people who do have a lot of distress in their lives, that's the scare. It's scarier for them to let go of what's on the inside than it is to let go to what's coming at them from the outside. And we all have a bit of both. So quite often when you're doing this kind of work, if you if you suddenly find yourself feeling way, way more intense emotion than you did in the past, that's the point. Mm-hmm. It may not be enjoyable in the sense of, yay, I got my free endorphins. It's more about the courage, the patience, and uh, I don't know, the kindness and compassion you have towards yourself to really find out, well, what if I let go of all this tension and realize I was molested as a kid too? Oh my God. Because mm. right? there, there, there is that possibility with, I don't know, I would say half of the people on the planet. 
you know, and as you say that, it sort of um, makes me think of a recap, if you will. Like the, how do I say this? The fact that this is a podcast about uh, health, uh, lifestyle, and mindset um, is a really good reflection of whatever it is we've been talking about today. Because I think about, in my own experience, having my own inner butterflies with lasers, <laughs> <laughs> my own sort of emotional world that's been sort of upside down at different times of my life, and how I've dealt with that through uh, just simple diet and exercise. And how that's helped. Mm -hmm. I stopped eating crap food. I stopped having crap thoughts. I mean, that's pretty simplistic, but it just makes me think that this uh, approach to uh, neurosomatic therapy is, uh, again, I use the word an invitation to take a deeper look at how um, everything you have is uh, healthy or not. There's a, I don't know what the classic metaphor or image would be, but um, I use the metaphor of stinky socks. So some people don't do their laundry very often. I imagine someone in a dormitory at university who's very, very busy and partying all the time. You know, if you went into the room of your friend across the hall and you're in university and you open the door and you're, you know, your eyes are streaming tears because of the horrible stench of 10-year-old socks under their person's bed, but they can't smell them. The person, so, the person in the room can't the person smell in the room. So there's lots of different things that happen in people's lives where you just basically, it, the, the noise or the pain or the smell or the whatever goes below the threshold of your awareness because it's been around that long it's a mm. funny thing about humans we adapt to stuff that um, if it's not a new sensation and it's not an important sensation we stop feeling it very much because our, our instinctual mind is always looking for the next new opportunity or the next new danger mm -hmm. so anything that's familiar gets muted as a sensation so people who have chronic trauma held in their body they can do a quick scan and say i feel fine Right. But until someone's in there massaging it or you're actually in there stretching it out going, well, do I feel like I'm holding a lot of tension, you know, in my occipital triangle muscles, you know, if I tilt my head around, it's like, holy crap. I mean, I'm, there's like, it's stuck. So could you, would you say that, um, uh, everybody at some, some level, even somebody who's healthy needs to consider, um, how this affects them in their everyday life? I think so. I mean, I, I was a professional athlete. I, I was considered to be super healthy. I even went once I was going to compete for a world record and, you know, this is in my twenties. And then 10 years later, I'm going, oh my God, I've been holding all this stuff in my whole life. The reason I wanted to be a martial artist and a priest and all this other stuff is I'm walking around with seething rage inside my guts for decades. I didn't know. Hmm. It's not there now. Oh, gone. Well, I'm fine. <laughs> okay, good. Are you worried clubbing you over the end of the microphone? <laughs> They're my mics. Don't touch them. Okay. <laughs> Back yeah. away from the microphones. Any, uh, anyway, so I don't want to take this to, to go too long, but I'm just wanting to run through that little recap that you sort of brought up. Uh, so if you're listening to this and you're interested in experimenting with it, the next time you're in an embodiment practice or you're lying in bed or you're getting a massage or something, just take the time to scan with your attention and move with your muscles uh, the area that's affected by bracing. And if you want, you can imitate what it would feel like to overdo bracing, which I'm doing right now, um, so that I can be more familiar with those muscles. It's kind of like you want to fake it to see if you actually feel it. So mm -hmm. if I fake bracing, I'm like, yeah, that's familiar. Am I doing that? Uh, on any level when I stop pretending to do it. So then I might imitate 
the anticipation, you know, like, is it Christmas or is Anthony going to try and club me over the head with a microphone? <laughs> <laughs> so I can feel and imitate and pretend that I'm feeling anticipation just so that you can map it better. And then you relax into it and go, okay, what, what actually is there? Same thing with the reactivity in the back of your neck, with the, the clenching of your fists and your clenching of your jaw. You're like, okay, uh, yeah, there's that much of uh, that in me. Uh, check in with your back, uh, mid to low back, and you know, you move around a little bit, but then tense up like you're really, really nervous. You know, yeah, that's really, that's it. Like a lot of people, that's where they hold that, and I can feel that much in me. And the tricky thing with your diaphragm is, and when you get into this, there's a lot of, you know, breath work and stuff. You have to reverse the way you breathe to relax your diaphragm, which I don't know if I can explain that very well. You're going to try? I'm going to try. So, Typically, if you're going to relax something, you would tense as you breathe in and then relax as you breathe out, right? For your diaphragm, you have to tense as you uh, breathe out and then relax as you breathe in. Hmm. Right? So I want to stretch out my diaphragm. I want to stretch it out as I'm breathing in, right? And then as I relax, I'm going to contract my diaphragm. Like, I'm... Mr. Burns from The Simpsons just popped into my mind. I don't know why, but like a, a really, really like a really tense, evil person, and I'm holding all my tension in my guts, so I can imitate that. Smithers, then, who's that guy down on the production line? <laughs> that guy with that plutonium sticking out of his neck. Bring him to me. <laughs> wow, that was a great one. <laughs> anyway, so just when you're trying to relax the diaphragm, you have to play with the breathing differently. Um, yeah, and if, I think if I try and get any more specific, it's going to take five hours because mm, yeah. there's a lot to that practice. I just wanted to go through those layers of embodiment to give people either who are practicing something or, or looking to maybe uh, find a way to deal with stress and tension more, more precisely. If you can work with those layers, you're going to find um, lots of opportunities to more deeply relax. Mm. And uh, who couldn't use that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I think that might be a good place to sort of wrap things up for the day. Um, it's been a very uh, interesting discussion because as much as we've been talking here for just over an hour, it feels like this is the place to start. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like we've been unraveling the whole idea. And now I'm going to start. Dear Google, <laughs> help me figure this out. Yeah. And I'm actually going to be doing, um, I've just discovered how easy it is to make online courses possible. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and take a lot of the old video footage of me teaching this stuff and I'm going to try and edit it or I'll just well, no, refilm it or something like that so that people who want to learn more about neurosomatic therapy can actually go online and be certified. But they would have to come here for like a, an intensive at some point to do all the, make sure the hands-on stuff actually works. But I would say 90% of the stuff you could learn if you could practice on your friends, if you have a massage table or something. Wow. Sounds pretty exciting. Yep. Yeah. And uh, when you said the word come here, you meant Nelson. Yep. Yeah. You, or I would have to go to a city and we could all meet up and spend about no, probably four days going through everything to make sure everyone had the technology down just right. Yeah. Great. Uh, this has been uh, episode 29, Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Uh, neurosomatic therapy as a practice. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa. I've been speaking today with Dr. Michael Smith. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, uh, please share it with a friend. Uh, that is one heck of a way for you to tell them that you care and for us to get the word out to a few more people. Um, as well, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Stitcher or iTunes, um, whatever the process is, uh, give us a thumbs up or a review. Uh, let them know that uh, you've been listening because um, then we find out you've been listening. 
Uh, we're on Facebook. Look for Fusion Health Radio there, and you can leave uh, comments, concerns, complaints, questions, anything. Please do let us know you're listening, and um, share this with a friend. Anything else? Did I miss anything there? Michael's nodding his head no. <laughs> I think we have done our job effectively. <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh, it's been a great uh, conversation with you today, Michael. Thanks for uh, talking to me about neurosomatic therapy. You bet. And I hope this helps all these people listening out there to uh, just explore relaxing. Yeah, sounds good. See you next time, folks. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio. 